So this morning we're going to look at three passages. Exodus 13, verses 17 to 18, which is where Israel is just leaving Egypt for the wilderness. Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 to 21, where God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And then Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, where Luke tells us that Jesus would go off by himself into the wilderness to pray. And we're looking at these passages because I had a conversation this week that really struck me. And uh, this person said that as we reached 30 plus days of social distancing, that they kept thinking about Jesus being by himself in the wilderness for 40 days and how our situation seems to have some spiritually valuable parallels. And I immediately thought, yeah. Because while they're obviously not exactly the same thing, they are connected at least broadly in this way. The Bible tells us that the Father works all things toward the goal of making us look like Jesus. Which means that as Christians, whatever we're facing must be a tool the Holy Spirit is using to shape us as individuals and as a congregation into little images of our Lord Jesus. Because with God, nothing is wasted. And since I think the connection between our present moment of social distancing and Jesus' relationship to the wilderness is helpful to seeing and understanding some of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, I want to meditate on that this morning. And we're going to do that by asking four questions. The first question we're going to ask is, what is the wilderness in the Bible? And for the sake of time, I'm going to answer that question by kind of more or less surveying the Bible rather than exegeting a particular text. The second question we're going to ask is, why do we need the wilderness? And we'll answer that from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. The third question we're going to ask is, what happens in the wilderness to us? And we'll answer that question from Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 to 21. And then our final question, our fourth question, will be why we should seek the wilderness. And we'll answer that from Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. So, what is the wilderness? Why do we need the wilderness? What happens to us in the wilderness? And then finally, why should we seek the wilderness? And so let's read our passages, and then we'll start answering our questions this morning. So first, Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. <clears throat> when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And now, Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 through 21. This is at the very end of God giving the Ten Commandments. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And now finally in the New Testament, Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. <clears throat> but now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. 
but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This father reading of what can only be God's own word. Let us pray together. Our trying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Father, we thank you that your word is useful because it teaches us about our life with you now, what our life will be with you in the future, and uh, how you are at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus, to purify us and to form us more fully into those who are full of faith and repentance and love. And so, Father, we pray now this morning that you would do this through our meditation on your word. And, Father, we ask that the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word would be pleasing in your sight through the mercies of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so the first question we need to answer this morning is, what is the wilderness in the Bible? And so first, let's point out that the wilderness is a super important context throughout the whole Bible. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all take place mostly or totally in the wilderness. And so do significant events in Genesis. Uh, Abraham leaves his home country and travels to the promised land through the wilderness. Abraham offers up his son Isaac and gets a replacement offering in the wilderness. And God saves Abraham's concubine Hagar and their son Ishmael in the wilderness. And I could actually go on. Uh, so the first five books of the Bible, which are in many ways the foundation of the Bible, are deeply entrenched in the context of the wilderness. And so are the Psalms. Uh, where the wilderness appears a lot. And after this morning's sermon, maybe you'll notice it more and more as you read them. The wilderness is also very important in the prophets. So in the, in the prophets, prophecies, judgments, salvation, those often take place in the context of the wilderness. And also in the book of Job, at the very climax of the book of Job, where God is answering Job out of the whirlwind, God uses his relationship with the wilderness as the way in which he answers Job's complaints. And then, of course, in the New Testament, just to pick uh, an easy example, the wilderness shows up a lot in the Gospels. Significant events in Jesus' life take place in the wilderness. His baptism by John the Baptist happens in the wilderness. His temptations by the devil, his prayer life, and even much of his teaching. Okay, so given its prominence then, in the Bible, what is the wilderness? Well, I'm deeply indebted to uh, one of my favorite Bible scholars, Richard Baucom, for the answer to this question. And he points out in one of his many works that uh, the wilderness is not what I always thought it was. And maybe what you've always thought of it as, as sort of this barren, lifeless, hopeless wasteland, right? Like the Sahara Desert or the moon, uh, no, in the Bible, the wilderness is just all the places on earth that are not under human occupation and control. The wilderness is where there is no farming, no irrigation, no houses, no cities or towns. Really, it's the wild. And given the way our language has changed, the wild is probably the translation we should use for that word. And you can see the idea of it being the wild, for instance, in passages like Isaiah chapter 27, verse 10, 
where God is describing what's going to happen to the fortified cities of Israel after a wave of foreign armies comes through. And God says this, and Isaiah says, For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. Right, so the city is solitary because it no longer houses humans or is full of human activity. Now it houses wild animals who graze on the wild trees that sprouted between the cracks of the streets as the city falls to ruin. And so from here, the wilderness or the, or the wild takes on this meaning. It's the place where all life relies directly on God's provision. The wild is watered by rain and snow and streams. It's not watered by irrigation. Food is not grown by farming. It's provided by the plants that God grows and by the animals that God does or does not allow you to find and use as food. The shelter is not provided by houses. Safety isn't provided by soldiers. All of these things are provided by God. So you can think of it this way. In the Bible, the wilderness is where we get to experience and see God's care directly rather than, as we so often do, indirectly. Right? We're so used to God's indirect provision through his provisions of farming and construction and grocery stores. The wilderness is where it comes in a way that is clearly direct from God's hand. Now, I should say that, that this doesn't make the wilderness better than cities and towns and grocery stores. No, in the Bible, God desires both the wild and the city. And we need both because God gives both to us and to all of creation as a gift. So if the wilderness is the place where humans sort of aren't terraforming through farming and irrigation and building, and if it's the place where God's provision is experienced in, in an intensified and direct way, then our second question, why do we need the wilderness, can be answered pretty quickly, especially if we just listen to Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. So remember the context. Israel has been chattel slaves for 40 years where they were worked until they died, only to be replaced by another slave, who was then worked until they died. And on top of that, Pharaoh and, and most Egyptians subjected them to a pogrom of systematic murder and genocide, right? murdering the firstborn of every family member to reduce their population so that they could keep them forever as slave labor. Now, the effects of this multi-decade oppression and murder and genocide would be much like that which was faced by uh, African-American slaves, and even through a few changes in analogy, abused spouses and abused children. And now while there are a lot of effects that we could talk about in those areas, I'll just focus on the one effect that our text focuses on this morning. So in verse 17, God says that he's concerned that when Israel experiences new kinds of dangers and new kinds of violence, in this case, the dangers and violence of war, they will, as he says, change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Because, of course, 
the fear and the dangers you understand and have adapted yourself to always become more desirable than the fears and desires you don't understand and have not adapted yourself to. It's why freed African-American slaves sometimes stayed on plantations after they were emancipated. And it's why sometimes tragically abused spouses will return to their abusers. Oppression, abuse, and fear, they twist us so that those experiences become normal. And what's normal, even if it's twisted, is so offering comforting. So while Israel has been saved, she still needs to learn to follow Jesus into a new normal, a new way of life that's full of freedom and justice and love and worship and where those things and the experience of those things is what they are used to and what they find comfort in as so many of us want. And so what does God do then for them? Well, that's the beginning of verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. To lead his people into the salvation and freedom he gave them. To lead them into a new normal of goodness and holiness. He leads them into a place where they could best unlearn their old fears and best learn to develop trust in him. A trust that believes that life with Jesus is the best life. And a trust that believes that Jesus is not a liar or a tyrant or a capricious villain, but learns that Jesus is good and just and worthy of both worship and obedience, and that in worship and obedience of Jesus, we find the kind of life full of peace and love and joy that we all so desperately want. And then slowly in the wilderness, as we can see as God walks through them, there in, in the first five books, the first last four books of the Bible, you can see that God lovingly opens their hearts to him. He saves them from the Egyptian army. He provides water for them consistently in the desert. And he provides bread from heaven. And he even gives them good human leadership that works toward fostering and growing this new culture of righteousness and mercy, mercy and worship and obedience. So to unlearn a life dominated and shaped by the sins of oppression and murder, Israel was brought into the wild so that they can learn to trust God. In fact, Moses will describe this season of living with God in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, as a place where they learn that God carries them as a father carries his son to safety. To transform their intense suffering into a redeemed life, Israel needed a place where their need for God and their experience of God's provision could be felt in an intensified way. That's why Israel needed the wilderness, to unlearn oppression and to learn the basics of freedom in Christ. So what about us? Uh, we're not out in the wild right now, so how does this apply to us? Well, can't we at least say this? Since the wilderness is a place where we unlearn the effects of sin and learn to live in God's freedom by learning that Jesus is in control and that, that his control is good because he provides and cares and upholds us, then maybe we should say, and I would certainly want to say, 
that Jesus has been leading us into something like a wilderness experience of sorts these last 30 plus days. In terms of trusting God, we've had to come to terms with the fact that our medical knowledge wasn't and isn't able to simply beat the coronavirus. We've entered a place where we're confronted with the reality that we don't hold the keys of life and death. We lie down and sleep and rise again and remain healthy and heal from sickness at God's good pleasure and not our own. And importantly, we've also learned how false our idols are. The gods of economics, technology, military power, they can't shelter us from the ordinary dangers of disease or the struggles that come from those ordinary dangers. If the wilderness is the place where these kinds of things are stripped away so that our great needs and fears and inabilities can be exposed and even given and met by our sufficient, comforting, capable Savior, then we have entered the wilderness, at least in those senses. And like Israel, we need this wilderness time so that we can be stripped down and exposed because then we're in a place where we can both learn that in our weakness and fear and exposure, Jesus is faithful and good and provides for us and thus we can experience Jesus creating in our lives a new normal, more full of righteousness and joy and peace. And then from there we learn not only that we can trust God, we also learn how to trust God better, how to follow, how to listen, how to respond, how to rest in Him better than we yet have. And while that's obviously the general answer to our third question, which was, what happens to us in the wilderness? We can say something even more precise, because Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, tells us more precisely what God is doing. <clears throat> so in Exodus chapter 20, God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And by now I'm sure it's clear that the fact that Mount Sinai is in the wilderness means something. As a matter of fact, God actually highlights that. The very first verse of chapter 20, God says that he brings them to the wilderness of Mount Sinai. So clearly it means something. So God gives Israel these commands in the wilderness, in part because learning to trust God means learning to live a life that takes a particular shape. Trust and how we live are connected in the Bible. And so after giving the Ten Commandments from a fiery, smoking, lightning-filled, trumpet-blasting cloud, Moses says something profoundly important in verse 20. We read, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So for the sake of time, let me just point out that the fact that Moses says, don't fear because God wants you to fear him, clearly shows that when the Bible says fear God, it does not mean be afraid of God. Otherwise, Moses would be saying, don't be afraid. God wants you to be afraid. And that would be crazy. <laughs> no, the fear of God means love-shaped obedience. 
That's how the Bible describes it. It's just a phrase or an idiom that's almost exactly equivalent to the New Testament's own translations of that phrase, like walking in love, or as Paul says in Romans, the obedience of faith. So the goal of these commands, given in a location where Israel is meant to learn how to trust God and where they would learn the fear of God, right, how to shape their life of trust, how to walk in love with Him, how to have a faith-filled, love-shaped, cross-shaped obedience to the love of God is important. And as Moses says, we learn this kind of life through testing. So time is flying, so I'm going to be brief here. Here, testing does not come from the language of education, where a test means figuring out what you know. It comes from the language of metallurgy, that is specifically the way metals are purified. So say I give you a block of gold, and I ask you to find out if it's 24 karat or not. How do you know that? Well, before the invention of electron microscopes, what you would do is you'd melt it down to see how many impurities are in it. So part of this testing is determining how pure something is, but there's another part as well. So let's say you melted it down and you discovered that it's 22 karat gold. What you could do is raise the temperature and boil out the impurities until it became 24 karat gold. That's what testing is. So testing is not only the way that you determine how pure something is, it's actually mostly the way to make something more pure. So what God does in the wilderness through his commands is test us. That is, he reveals through situations that require trust-filled obedience how firm our trust really is, how deep our repentance is, how expansive our mercy is, and then he purifies all of those for us. Now, I should say that the wilderness is not the only context of testing in the Bible, uh, because God's word can and does purify us, test us, wherever we are. So God's word tests his people in the city. His word purifies us in our families and in our workplaces. He tests us in times of stress and in times of comfort. In fact, our entire life is a time where God's word is purifying and shaping his people so that we look more and more like Jesus. Because remember, with God, nothing is wasted. But having said all that, at the same time, we also need to say, and we know from experience, that different aspects of our life are more easily purified in different kinds of contexts. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves right now in the context of this wilderness-like experience is, what areas is God purifying in us as a congregation, right, as Grace Reformed, and as individual Christians? See, right now, God is drawing near in his word in this time to test us so that we can grow in loving obedience to him. So are we learning in this unsettling time that there are some idols that we were clinging to for security that we need to tear down so that we can trust God more? As we live in close proximity to the same people, are we learning that there are habits of speech 
or habits of response or patterns of thought about other people that need to be repented of. As the ways we normally spend our time are stripped away from us, are we learning what it really means to redeem the time, to use Paul's words? Are we learning how to better devote more of our time to spending and being spent in the service of the Lord, again to use Paul's words? And are we learning that what that looks like, to reference last Sunday's sermon a little bit, is actually mostly thought, can be thought of in terms of daily, consistent acts of service. My friends, these are the kinds of things that we need to be asking ourselves. The Lord has brought us into this wilderness-like experience at least to teach us to trust Him more in matters of life and death and to use our time more for Him and to rely more on His provision and to learn to live out of that trust in a way that is more faithful to God's Word, that looks more like Jesus than we did before we started this journey. Okay, so quickly, our final question. Why should we seek the wilderness? And our answer here is from Luke chapter 5, verse 16, where Luke tells us, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places. And the word translated as desolate is just the normal word for worship. So Jesus would withdraw to the wilderness and pray. Did I say the normal word for worship? The normal word for wilderness. So Jesus would withdraw to the wilderness and pray. So quickly, uh, you can see in Jesus' life and in the life of God's people that there are times when God drives us into the wilderness, like God did with Israel when they left Egypt, or like the Father did with Jesus where after his baptism, Mark tells us that he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days to face Satan's temptations. So there are times when God drives us into the wilderness, but there are also times when God's people seek the wilderness. In the Old Testament, most famously, Elijah did this when he was despairing in 1 Kings chapter 19. But then, of course, even more famously, Jesus often withdraws to the wilderness to pray. That's what Luke says. And here I just want to make two points. The first is, you'll notice that God's people seem to seek the wilderness after they've been driven to it. So while there are always seasons of being driven and seeking the wilderness, one does seem to come first, the other seems to follow. And I do think that's important to see. God drives us to a place where we need to recognize our need to trust Him and learn to shape our lives and trust around Him in very particular ways. And then we return from the wilderness changed, not only in the sense that we look more like Jesus, but also in the sense that we've learned how much we truly need Jesus and what it looks like to rely on Him. In fact, we learn that to need God, to experience that need, to come to Him in that need, to find Him, to find him meeting that need, that that's like water for us which sounds like Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so pants my heart for you, O God. I told you the wilderness was in the Psalms a lot. 
See, and having learned that trust in God is life, and that shaping our lives around that trust is love, what do we want to do then, having left the wilderness? Well, we want to seek God's face more. And so what does Jesus do after being driven into the wilderness and then returning? And Jesus does this, by the way, both to be an example to us, but also out of his own need. Because remember, Jesus is not only 100% God, he's also 100% human. And in his humanity, he needs to experience his daily need for God. And so he does this by consistently recreating something of his earlier wilderness experience where it's just him and the Father. Where he needs the Father and the Father meets his needs through his presence, through prayer. And now notice that Jesus doesn't necessarily or always go off into the wilderness again. And he doesn't leave ever again for 40 days, but he does go off away from his disciples and from the crowds. And also, maybe instructively for us, he does go off regularly into something that, while it isn't the wild, does approximate it. We're told that Jesus went frequently to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, which is why at the end of his life, he went there one more time. And I think we would be remiss, my friends, if we exit this time without having learned how deeply we need God, without having turned to Him in our need and found Him to be sufficient, and then without wanting to recreate something of that time where we learned that need and felt that need regularly into our lives, right? A pattern of going into the wilderness, if you will, or into wilderness-like places will recreating wilderness-like times so that we can experience God and find Him sufficient to meet our needs. And so for us, what, what would that look like? Well, it would probably look like creating a time without tech and without books and without music and without people, even people we love. A time without email, without a schedule. A time where we withdraw as Jesus did so frequently so that we can experience our need for God in His meeting our need through His presence. So as much as this wilderness experience is painful and hard, as they so regularly are, right? The wilderness is great and it's blessed, but it's not easy. As hard as it is, there is a reason for us to be here. Jesus is tearing down idols in our hearts and lives. And he's teaching us to trust him in the most important and basics of all things. Life and death. Provision. Comfort. Hope. And through that, Jesus is purifying us by leading us into a new normal of holiness and love. And Jesus is also inviting us how to think about how we might continue growing in recognizing our need for him as he brings us out of this wilderness in his good time. And so, my friends, I pray that you would join me in devoting yourselves to these lessons. Because with God, nothing, including all of these last 30, 40, 50 days, is wasted. 
Nothing with God is wasted. And all things are for our good life with Him. And He is giving us these things so that we can know Him more and be assured that where He is, there we shall be also. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you in this wilderness-like time confessing that we need you. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would meet our need for you with your presence and with your word. And Father, we pray that our need for you uh, would be expressed in growing obedience to you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would tear down our idols, that you would teach us to give you our fears, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would build us up in love and in joy, uh, so that we might look more and more like Christ, that we would be more and more purified. Uh, to the end, Father, that we would know you more, and that when those around us are in our presence, they would come to know you more as they meet Jesus who dwells within us. And also, Father, so that we would have confidence to know that where you are, there we shall be also. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.